Boys and girls, do you know what civil war is? Uh, we, we, we were talking about that in our house uh, a few weeks ago. Civil war. Uh, normally when we think of war, we, ha- we, ha- we have one country fighting against another country. Uh, but when you have civil war, you have two groups of people in the same country and they're fighting against each other. Uh, so we, we have, uh, in our world at the minute, we, we have Russia fighting against Ukraine, and that's not a, a civil war because they are two separate countries, but, but a civil war is when people in the same country are fighting against each other. And do you know, boys and girls, that our, our new king is called Charles III? Uh, so there have been three kings called Charles, and the first king called Charles was a long, long time ago, but there was civil war when he was king. And at the end of that civil war, Charles, the first Charles, he was arrested. And and do you know what happened to him? His his head was chopped off. Uh, So it probably won't happen to our king, Charles III, but that's what happened to Charles I. Uh, And another man called Oliver Cromwell ruled England instead. Uh, But in this chapter, we have a civil war. Some people want Absalom to be king of Israel instead of David. Others say, no, David is the true king. He's the one God has chosen. And this civil war is only really going to end when either David is killed or Absalom is killed. And so that's what's going on in this chapter. But actually, when we come to the big battle, the, the decisive battle, it's covered in three verses, verses six through eight. It is civil war in Israel. 20,000 people are killed, but we're hardly told anything about it. Instead, what the chapter seems to, to want us to focus on are the two leaders Absalom and David and so we're going to look at each of them in turn tonight starting with Absalom Uh, Absalom the man who would be king in the sense of wanting to be king Absalom's attempt to become king has been a long time in the planning Uh, Back in chapter 14, uh, we saw how he weaseled his way back to Israel, first of all, and then eventually back into David's presence, one step at a time. Then in chapter 15, we saw how he stole the hearts of the men of Israel, Uh, slowly, deliberately, over the course of years, he, he turned the hearts of the nation towards him. In chapter 16, David has to flee Jerusalem. He has to get out of the city just before Absalom arrives. And then in chapter 17, which we looked at last week, it takes the crucial intervention of of Hushai, this double agent. He's Absalom's advisor, but he's secretly working for David. It, It takes his intervention to delay things just enough so that David can prepare to fight. And now in chapter 18, battle comes. Maybe we, we, we think of our own uh, king at the minute, Charles III. It seemed that it's been, been, been such a long wait for him to become king. And Absalom too, uh, such a long time in the process. Years and years and years in, in the build up to this. And before we're even halfway through our chapter, he's killed. 
All that build-up, all that planning, all that momentum. His victory had looked inevitable. But a chance meeting with some of David's soldiers, an attempt to flee, his head stuck in a tree, and that's pretty much that. It is amazing how quickly things can change. Even a week ago, not many of us would have thought that Scotland would be looking for a new first minister. For those who watch those things closely, the writing may have been on the wall a little earlier. But the downfall of Nicola Sturgeon really has been remarkable. As is the fact that, that it's widely seen as having been brought about through her relentless push for transgenderism. Uh, one, one comment commentator writing in the Times said that the First Minister had had her position refuted by reality when she tried to send that that male offender to the female prison. She, She zealously held to her beliefs but reality refuted them. And on a bigger scale, that will be the case for all who oppose God and his King, Jesus Christ. That's what happens Absalom here. All these years of planning, the the charm offensive, the social media campaign, as it were, the, the misinformation. It all worked for a while. But then Absalom ran head into reality. The reality being that God had promised that David's throne would flourish. That he would build David a house, a kingdom. We live in a world where people are suppressing the truth. But they can only do it for so long. One day they'll have to stop pretending and come face to face with reality. It can seem very much to us like things are moving inevitably and irreversibly in one direction. And it seems, seems like that to, to them as well. But God can stop it just like that, just as he does here. And so, so don't panic when you see things moving apparently unstoppably in the wrong direction. Because God can stop the apparently unstoppable and he can do it in an instant. Just like Jesus calming the storm. So God intervenes suddenly here. But he doesn't intervene spectacularly. As is the case throughout the story of Absalom, God doesn't intervene in a dramatic way, but by that I mean Absalom isn't, isn't struck by lightning sword drawn in his hand. All there is in verse 9 is a chance meeting. Absalom happens to meet the servants of David. It's just, just a coincidence it seems. But of course God is overruling it all. Absalom, he perhaps sees them, he tries to get away. Uh, But he steers his mule uh, straight into some low-hanging branches and his head is caught fast in a tree. And uh, perhaps we have different pictures in in our minds here because you you can picture this as Absalom with his head uh, stuck uh, between a couple of branches or, or, or between a fork and a branch. 
though the, the image many of us, I would guess, have in our minds, uh, perhaps one we've seen it in story Bibles, is of Absalom hanging by his hair in a tree. So, so which is it? Is the second one Absalom hanging by his hair? Is that is that just a bit of over imagination? Well, well, not necessarily, uh, because the word head can be used to mean hair. Uh, for example, back in chapter fourteen, where we were told about Absalom cutting his hair because it was heavy on him, uh, the word hair isn't actually used the first time we're we're told about it. Uh, just the word head. Uh, and I think it is a pretty natural way to understand it, that, that Absalom is here caught by his hair. We, we've been told about his hair. His hair, the thing he takes pride in. And it seems natural that the thing that he took pride in would become his downfall. The thing that he glori- gloried in would become a curse for him. Which surely is a warning that, that if we glory in God's gifts but, but refuse to acknowledge God and if we use them to promote our glory rather than his, then those very gifts will prove our downfall. Absalom in his pride had built a monument to himself. We, we read about it in verse 18. But actually he ends up with a second monument, a monument he didn't want a very great heap of stones over the pit that contains his lifeless body. Absalom wanted to be remembered. And he is remembered all right. But he's remembered as the man who tried to remove God's king from the throne. And there was this massive pile of stones in the middle of a forest as a reminder of where that got him. So boys and girls, maybe that's if you want to draw a picture of of a forest and a big pile of stones piled up over Absalom. But we're getting a a bit ahead of ourselves. Let's, Let's go back to Absalom hanging from this oak tree. As I say, we're not specifically told that he's hanging by his hair, but the wording allows it. Uh, The context maybe even implies it. But whatever way he ends up attached to the tree, Absalom is hanging there. And it seems like a total fluke. Uh, The world would look at it and say, well, that is horrendously bad luck for Absalom. One minute he's on his mule, the next minute the mule is still going, but there's no rider on his back. It seems like a total fluke. But then we remember the words of Deuteronomy. A hanged man is cursed by God. Or as Paul quotes it in Galatians, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And suddenly it doesn't seem so coincidental. Here is the man who rebelled against God and his kingdom. And now he's hanging from a tree under God's curse. Humanly speaking, that morning, the chances of Absalom ending the day hanging from a tree would have been minute. But in fact, when that day dawned, there was nothing more certain Because God had decreed it. And this will be the fate of all like him. All who fight against God's kingdom, they will end up under God's curse. 
this truth I trust reassures us. It should give us the same confidence that Luther had when, when he wrote, The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not at him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. We can go into another week saying of our great enemy, His rage we can endure, we will endure, for lo, his doom is sure. This truth puts steel in our bones. It helps us go, go back out into a hard world this week because we know that we're on the winning side. This truth should reassure us that this is where those who oppose God are heading. But this certainly should never make us proud or vindictive because as we picture Absalom hanging there from the tree, we need to realise that this should have been us. It should have been us. We were the ones who deserved to die under God's curse. Why? Well, firstly, because Adam and Eve, they listened to the serpent's lies. And like them, we have done the same. And so we deserve to be under God's curse. The curse because of sin. But then there's a second reason why we deserve to die under God's curse. Because what do we do when, when we realise that we aren't actually good people after all? Well, we try and work our way back into God's favour. And what does God say about that strategy? The Bible says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So we deserve God's curse both because of our sin but also because of what, what we try and do to undo our sin. Doubly cursed. Cursed in Adam. Cursed because of our sin but also cursed because we try and work our way out of our predicament. We deserve to die under God's curse. And so why? Why won't we? Why won't we if we're believers? Because someone else has died there in our place. Like Absalom suspended between heaven and earth. But this one who was suspended between heaven and earth in our place wasn't a, a wannabe, pretend, rebel king like Absalom. But he was the true king, Jesus Christ. Uh, and yet on the cross he was suspended between heaven and earth. He died under God's curse and he died for us. And if the unintentional death of David's rebellious son brought peace in Israel. If the unintentional death of David's rebellious son Absalom brought peace in Israel. How much more will the, the deliberate, planned death of David's obedient son, Jesus Christ, mean life for the world? The death of David's obedient son, Jesus Christ, will mean life for the world. 
And so when we read about Absalom, we're not simply reading about an interesting and unusual death. We're not simply reading even about about pride coming before a fall. We're seeing a picture of what we deserve. We're seeing the future of the unbeliever dying under God's curse. But by God's grace, if we put our faith in Jesus, it's no longer a picture of us. It's no longer our future. Because Jesus has hung there in our place. So firstly, tonight, Absalom, the man who would be king. And he's just like us. We all want to be king instead of God. But then secondly, we see David. And David is the king who doesn't act like one. So secondly tonight, David, the king who doesn't act like one. In the second half of the chapter, through the first part of chapter 19, David is the winner, but he acts like the loser. And what stops David acting like the king he should have been is his inordinate affection for his rebellious son. In other words, his desire for Absalom to stay alive seems to be the only thing that matters to him. And of course, we can understand David's love for his son and his grief for his son up to a point at least. The Puritan John Flavel uses David's grief here as an example and says, What a hole has the death of some children made in the hearts of some parents, which will never be closed up in this world. A hole that will never be closed up in this world. Yes, Absalom has grown into a wicked man, but he was still David's son. He was still his boy. Spurgeon is right enough when he says it is much easier for us to blame a father under such circumstances than for us quite to understand his feelings. It's easier to blame David here than try and understand his feelings. And yet blame him we must. We can't be unmoved when we hear David lamenting over Absalom. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And yet, as a result of David's uncontrolled grief, we're told in chapter 19, verse 3, that after the battle, the people stole into the city as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And as the writer of Second Samuel telling us that the people were ashamed when they shouldn't have been ashamed. We, we saw four or five weeks ago it must be Tamar ashamed when she had no need to be ashamed and, and here too the, the people of God as a whole are ashamed when, when they had no need to be ashamed. God had given them a great victory but they were acting as if it was a defeat. Because David was acting as if it was a defeat. Joab speaks boldly in the opening verses of chapter 19. But he speaks the truth. 
Joab is a perceptive man. Uh, we see just how high the stakes are in verse 7 when he says to David, Now therefore arise, go and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and it will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Joab recognises there that David has had a hard life. But, he says, David, if you don't pull yourself together now and start treating those who love you better than those who hate you, you will lose your kingdom. And David, to his credit, listens. But it was a close thing. It was a very close thing. David had been close to losing his kingdom in chapter 17 had not Hushai intervened to to thwart the advice of Ahithophel. But here David is as close if not closer to losing his kingdom. And if he had it would have been completely self-inflicted. We can't fault David for keeping loving his rebellious son We can't fault David for being crushed by Absalom's death. But his inordinate love, his disproportionate love for a son in rebellion against God is affecting his decision making. He's no longer doing what is best for the kingdom. He's no longer playing the role that God has called him to play. Temporarily, at least. Deoroth Davis comments that David's order to deal gently with Absalom would have made sense if Absalom was about to enter therapy, but not if he was about to enter war. We, we can't not be touched as we hear of, of David asking them to go easy on Absalom, but, but it's, it's, not, it's not the right approach. And remember that 20,000 people died that day. 20,000 people whose, whose parents loved them as David loved Absalom. Think of all those bereaved families, all those mothers who had sons go off into battle and never come home. And it's all utterly preventable. Preventable because Absalom decided to rebel against God's king. And also preventable because David years before this hadn't done what needed to be done if David had ensured that Absalom faced capital punishment for the murder of his brother Amnon or even if David had just made sure that Absalom stayed in exile this wouldn't have happened but for for years now David's undue disproportionate love for his wicked son has clouded his judgment it's made him weak and it almost loses him the kingdom and at the end of the day Absalom still dies if Absalom had been put to death for murder back at the beginning it would have saved 20,000 lives David has brought so much trouble on the kingdom because of his choosing Absalom over what was right and just 
David's words pull at the heartstrings and sometimes people will say words that pull at our heartstrings but but the question is what is right and what is just and even after Absalom is dead David's mourning for him threatens to undo everything in fact should we, should we even call David's affections for his son love Because if David had really loved him, he would have said hard things to him. He would have made sure Absalom had faced the consequences for the cold-blooded murder he had carried out. But sadly, this is a theme in the books of Samuel. Uh, We've seen it with Eli. We've seen it with Samuel himself. uh, And now we see it with David. Wicked sons all of them had it and yet their fathers don't take the actions they should have taken how does this translate to our own day we'll think of the the long term elder his son has grown up got married Uh, the son and his wife have a baby the son is a, a member of the church where his dad is an elder but he's very hit and, met, hit and miss at worship. But they want the baby baptised. The minister and another elder go round and speak to the son and say, we're concerned about you spiritually. We can't go ahead with the baptism until we see a change. The son complains to his father. Well, fill in the blank. How, how does the story end? Does it end with the father saying, son, I, I love you. But, but they're right enough in what they say. We're worried about you, son. Well, well, that's how it should end. But often it results in the father resigning as an elder in protest at how his son's been treated. An opportunity to actually have a serious conversation with his son about his spiritual condition becomes an opportunity to demonstrate that blood is thicker than water. Or it doesn't have to be a family member, it can be a close friend. But if we are going to be loyal to people, no matter what they do, no matter whether they are in the right or or in the wrong, if we are going to to pin everything to another person, then that's a sin of impartiality. Kyle Borg, who was here recently, he, he wrote an article last week where he said, the closer our relational bonds which is a good thing, the closer our relational bonds, the more easily we can be tempted by blind loyalty, party spirit or clouded judgment. These things have no place among those who count themselves servants of Christ. And surely clouded judgment sums up David in this chapter. Beware the sin of partiality siding with people because of who they are whether they're on the right side or not pray against that sin in yourselves pray against that sin in your elders and minister and to apply this in a wider sense the puritans often use david's disproportionate love for absalom as an example of how there can be some sins that we just aren't willing to kill. And yet kill them we must. 
Sparing Absalom's life here would only have risked another rebellion, an extended civil war, more death to be added to the 20,000 who have already died. Ralph Davis comments, David would treat cancer with candy, but Joab knew it required surgery and he nominated himself as surgeon. As long as Absalom is alive, David's life and his kingdom is under threat. The lives of of people in Israel are under threat. And if we leave any sin alive, our spiritual lives are at risk. And it has been rightly said, so rightly said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That sin that you aren't willing to kill It is the sin that that one day may kill you. David just just can't bring himself to give the order for Absalom to be killed. It has to be taken out of his hands. And and sometimes there are sins that we, we just can't bring ourselves to kill. But there will be consequences. And as we bring things to a close tonight... Is it possible that there's more to David's grief when Absalom dies than just the fatherly bond alone? Why such unbounded grief from David? Because after all, David at a previous point had managed to have Absalom live in Jerusalem for two years without ever letting him come and see him. So David has shown in the past that he can play hardball with Absalom why can't he do it now? Well, I think it, it tells us that there is more going on here than simply the loss of a son. Not, not simply the loss of a son. It's, a, it's a, a, a horrific thing to, to happen for anyone to experience. But, but there's more to David's grief even than that. David's unbounded grief for Absalom is surely because David knows that ultimately Absalom's death is his fault. God had told him, chapter 12, verse 10, because you have despised me, the sword will not depart from your house forever. And what has happened since then? Well, David's infant son has died. His son Amnon has been murdered. And now Absalom has died in battle. Perhaps if we just take this chapter by itself, we, we forget that context. But, but chapter 12, the sword will not depart from your house forever. And, and so ultimately David knows that it's his own sin that has unleashed the sword on his household. People sometimes struggle with the fact that David didn't suffer the death penalty for Uriah's murder. And yet David, for his part, would rather have died than face all this. The death, not just of one child, but multiple children. It says here at the end of verse 18, Would that I had died instead of you. David is the the guilty one, and yet Absalom suffers the consequences of David's sin. Not that Absalom doesn't have his own guilt, of course, that's, that's clear he does, but, but the sword here comes against him, ultimately because of David's guilt. 
But David, as much as he, he wants to, he can't die for Absalom. He can't take away Absalom's guilt because he is guilty himself. He can't swap places with him because it would just have been to swap one guilty man for another. And neither can David atone for Absalom's sin. David, in the words of his own men in chapter 18, verse 3, is worth 10,000 of them. But for someone to be able to bear the punishment that Absalom deserved, it would have had to be been worth even more. He would have had to be God himself. Because only someone who was himself God could have borne the infinite wrath of God that Absalom deserved and that each of us deserves. And so rebels like Absalom and like us need someone who is both innocent but also someone who is no mere man, someone who is God himself. That's what we need and that is what we have in Jesus Christ. Thomas Boston made this connection one day, preaching in the borders. He, he said, David wished he had died for his rebellious son, but Christ really died for his. David wished he had died for his rebellious son, but Christ really died for his. What David wanted to do but couldn't do, Jesus did. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us David wanted to die in place of Absalom because he was his son even though he was acting as an enemy Jesus died for his enemies to make them sons David wanted to die for his son even though he was acting as an enemy Jesus died for his enemies to make them sons so this is a sad section of God's word in many ways. And yet we can't get away from the cross. Whether in Absalom hanging there under God's curse, pointing forward to someone else who would do the same thing, but do it deliberately rather than accidentally and do it in our place. Or whether it's in David wanting to die for his rebellious son, but being unable to do so. And even how the story ends points us to the cross. The civil war ends in a day of great sorrow and yet it is a day of good news. Just like the day that Jesus died was a day of great sorrow. A, a day when the words of Joab in verse 20 would never have been more appropriate had someone said, you may carry news another day but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. That Friday, around 30 AD, that was the day the king's son died. But the reason it's known as Good Friday is because ultimately it was a day of good news. Despite the death of the king's son, and in fact because of the death of the king's son. And if our faith is in that king's son who died in our place that day, then whatever challenges we may face tomorrow, we can say in the words of verse 28, all is well. All is well. Amen.
Well, we sing in closing from Psalm 94. Psalm 94. Starting with verses 6 and 7 on page 222. Now, page 222. Psalm 94, 6 and 7, and then 10 to the end. The middle of verse 6 says, Blessed the man whom you chastise, Lord. And is that not David in these verses? David under God's chastisement. And then verse 7, Give him rest from days of strife till wicked men in pits are thrown. And what happens? Absalom will be thrown in a pit. And David is given rest from strife. And then we sing in verse 12, the final verse, that God is our stronghold. And when we sing here of God's vengeance on the wicked, remember we are those who, like Absalom, deserved to die under God's curse. Uh, but instead, uh, Jesus has died in our place. So Psalm 94, 6 and 7, and then 10 to the end, we'll stand and sing praise.